Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is February the 9th, 2022. Uh, I'm talking to you, as always, from the great city of San Francisco on the west coast of the United States. This country, uh, the United States, seems to be, according to many, in some degree of political crisis, maybe not on the verge of breaking up, but perhaps even on the verge of civil war. We've had a couple of shows about the imminence of civil war in America, one with Stephen Marsh, uh, the Canadian analyst. We've had a lot of other shows about the political crisis in America. Earlier this week, I talked to Michael Waldman, the voting rights activist, on his, his new book about the fight to vote. There also seems to be a constitutional crisis brewing associated with abortion and a number of other issues. We had the New York Times, a very distinguished New York Times uh, authority on uh, the Supreme Court, Linda Greenhouse, on uh, the show late last year. Lots of things happening, um, and a lot of people are very worried. So what are we going to do about it? There was an article yesterday that caught my attention, a nice piece in The Atlantic. The fight for democracy will be a long, long haul. It was by my guest today, uh, Linda Hirschman, for guidance, turn to the abolitionists who led the campaign against slavery in America. Uh, Linda says, and Linda indeed has a new book out, uh, The Color of Abolition, How a Printer, a Prophet, and a Contessa Moved a Nation. Linda suggests in her Atlantic piece that the fault lines of today's political chasm go back to the decades that preceded the Civil War. One can see them in our geography. Most of the states that will recriminalize abortion, for example, are in the old confederacy and the rural or deindustrialized regions it influenced, and in our racial division, which continues to render the country into more or less two camps. History then is repeating itself, and I'm thrilled that Linda is joining us from her home in Phoenix, Arizona. Linda, congratulations on this wonderful new book of yours. Uh, the Color of Abolition. You've written a number of bestsellers, including uh, Sisters in Law and uh, Reckoning, the epic battle against sexual abuse and harassment. Uh, this new book, uh, The Color of Abolition, did you read it? Uh, sorry, did you write it because you're fascinated with the history? Or did you choose this subject because you thought it might offer us some lessons as we try to figure out our political crisis of the early 21st century? So I always try to pick social movements that succeed so that we can learn some lessons from them for the here and now. Uh, the Gay Revolution, which was the subject of one of my earliest books, was a pretty successful social movement and has lots of lessons to teach us. And that's sort of how I started. I, I will say that even I, who call myself Cassandra, did not realize seven years ago when I started working on this book, how much the here and now would come to resemble 
the fraught period that I was writing about. Why do you call yourself Cassandra? Because I see stuff like Cassandra. I see stuff before everybody else sees it. And like Cassandra, you may remember it was a curse. Um, People often don't believe me when I tell them what is coming. Why do you see things before everyone else? Are you just smarter than everyone or older Um, or wiser? Or more thoughtful? I love to think that I was smarter than everyone, and it wasn't just because I refused to have sex with Apollo like Cassandra. Um, I don't know actually the answer to that. I have spent a lot of my life studying and thinking about history and politics, and my philosophy degree is in an exercise in collective action. So I, you know, hard work is a lot of it. But yes, the, the world does speak to me in a weirdly prescient way. So we are indeed talking to Cassandra. We're very Thank lucky today. Know. Linda Hirschman, otherwise known as Cassandra, <laughs> the author of Color of Abolition, How a Printer, a Prophet, and a Contessa Moved the Nation. Um, the assumption, of course, is that the abolition of slavery was a good thing and the victory of the North in the Civil War was a good thing. In your excellent thoughtful piece in the Atlantic, which came out yesterday, Linda, uh, the fight for democracy will be a long, long haul. You have seven lessons. And in the first half of this conversation, I want to go through each of them briefly uh, for you to explain what we can learn from the 19th century. And then in in the second half of the show, I want to talk more specifically about your book. Uh, The first lesson uh, you suggest is that ideas and publishing them matter. What do you mean by that? Um, Almost all the social movements that I have written about and that I haven't written about, like the rise of of Protestantism, um, go forward on the back of changes in media technologies. So Protestantism, for example, was very much the product of the invention of uh, the printing press, of movable type. So I have always found in my um, work that when uh, social change comes, it almost always comes on the back of a change in media technology. So that's, of course, true. But there's another interpretation, perhaps a more pessimistic, a darker view, which is mass killing, terrible civil war comes on the back of of technological change. The Hundred Years' War, for example, the Reformation came with the invention of the printing press. So you can spin that argument either way. Right, but it's social change, right? So you have to pay attention to the vehicles of social change, whether they are more used for evil or for betterment. And um, if the forces for progressive politics, which I am in favor of, and I'm trying to teach the lessons of abolition and so forth, if they pay attention to the possibilities in the changes in the media and the opportunities that the media provides, then they will be able to um, conscript the media to their ends more effectively than the forces of evil can do it for theirs. So you're 100% correct. Radio, for example, was very much a a vehicle for the rise of fascism. So there's no question that it can be harvested either way. What I'm saying is if you're going to act collectively to make good social change, you have to pay very acute attention 
to the media opportunities that you have and use them to their fullest. Let's go to the second um, lesson you've derived from the 19th century uh, and your book, The Color of Abolition. Weekly meetings build solidarity. Uh, what does that mean, Linda? Well, this is actually a lesson that I learned from studying um, the gay movement act up in the in my one of my earlier books, Victory the Triumphant Gay Revolution. They have meetings every Monday night at the Gay and Lesbian Center in New York and then elsewhere as as act spread across the country. And I was so struck by how essential those Monday night meetings were to the very effective movement change that ACT UP made. And then I realized, I actually didn't realize, Troy Perry, the founder, Reverend Troy Perry, the founder of one of the gay, or first gay churches, told me, he said, Linda, what do you think churches do? They meet every Sunday. And of course, that was a really important insight because they, of course they meet every Sunday. And when I looked at abolition, abolition was built on the back of the Second Great Awakening, which was a religious evangelical movement in the late 18th and early 19th century. So the abolitionist movement learned from the church movement, the Second Great Awakening, to have regular meetings. When people get together regularly, it forms human ties among them and they are more faithful to one another and they reinforce each other's will to do whatever the common enterprise is and um and they don't feel so beleaguered so the abolitionists were terribly beleaguered just like the aids activists were in the 1980s and 90s and they could take strength from each other's company and we have from the abolitionist movement their letters, which reflect very much that they took strength from each other's company, from their regular yeah. meetings. And when they got together, they inspired each other to cook stuff up, like yeah. what to do. I think it's an important point, Linda. We always assume that history is somehow inevitable, but you're suggesting that it's determined by political agency. Tocqueville, of course, who came to America before the Civil War, understood the value of religion, and other political organizations in affecting change. That's what he defined as the uniqueness of a democracy in America. And your third um, lesson touches on this too. Talk and knock far and wide. In other words, you're talking about the importance of political activism and action. And I'm talking about retail politics. I think that one of the really terrible things about the pandemic, after the death and suffering, <laughs> is that um, in the election of 2020, the Democrats who have taken um, the pr prime position in advancing progressive politics in America right now, um, were not able to do the kind of retail politics, knocking on people's doors and talking directly to them that we could do before it was dangerous. And um, I saw that in uh, abolitionism. Abolitionism stole an idea from the British um, voting activists, right? So in right before the abolitionist movement in the 1830s, the uh, middle classes in Great Britain were trying to get the right to vote for parliament, which had been heavily dominated by the British aristocrats. 
And since they couldn't vote, they couldn't threaten the existing parliament with withholding their votes because they couldn't vote, just like voter suppression now has the same effect. So they resorted to petitioning campaigns and they went door to door and they got hundreds of thousands of signatures from British non-voting and voting residents and they delivered them to parliament. And the abolitionists stole that idea from the, um, the great campaigns, suffrage campaigns in Great Britain. And then they would go to each other's homes and it was often the women who did it and they would find the women at home in at the kids was true kitchen table politics and they would solicit their signatures on petitions the first ones were to abolish the slave trade in the nation's capital an unseemly activity and um, they would convert them to abolitionists woman to woman at their kitchen tables and then the women would bring in their male members of their families who could in America vote. So they spread the word of abolition through not retail, the crudest kind of retail politics, knocking on people's home doors and telling them about the political movement. As a later American politician, of course, famously said, all politics is local. And also you're suggesting all politics is moral. You you suggest your fourth uh, lesson from the 19th century abolitionist movement in terms of our current crisis is we need to make injustice visible to the public. What does this mean, Linda? Um, so uh, I always, I, since the beginning of my work, I've had three basic lessons. Now it's expanded. Um, but it was take the moral high ground, have regular meetings, and stick to your knitting. Don't take up every single possible cause. Take the moral high ground is um, really the characteristic of all the successful social movements. Sometimes their morality is not the same as mine. The rise of the American right was very much driven by a moralistic language and a moralistic program. Um, what the response to that often from liberals is relativism. It's like, you know, whatever floats your boat, don't tell me what to do, don't tell me who to love. And that's a mistake. Um, the gay marriage movement, for example, succeeded when they showed, they, they made the argument for the morality of love and of stable long-term relationships. And so did the abolitions. The, you know, human enslavement was a profoundly immoral movement. I, I take that, Linda, very, but, but very briefly, you can't compare that with what's happening today. I mean, there's no equivalent to slavery in, in, in the America of the 2020s, is there, in terms of moral, morality? Correct. There is, you know, it's like um, what Godwin's Law, right? Never compare anything to the Holocaust. Um, nothing in American history is worse than chattel slavery. Believe me, I of all people know that having read all the fugitive slave narratives and so forth. But um, there can be evil and immoral conduct short of absolute evil. And you can't say, well, we're not gonna fight race discrimination and the withholding of women's reproductive rights and interfering with the right to vote because it's not as bad as slavery. 
there's a very profound moral argument to be made against what the forces of the right are doing now. Um, and, I, and I think that's particularly the case, perhaps, when it comes to abortion. And your your fifth lesson is much less moral, much more political. You suggest that we need to, we being progressives, generally need to get control of the Supreme Court. Uh, I talked at the beginning about having Linda Greenhouse on, on the show. Um, you've done a lot of writing on Ginsburg. Um, you had a piece in the Washington Post uh, about Vic Ginsburg having a vision for America, which her colleagues thwarted. What's the big deal about getting control of the Supreme Court, Linda? Well, the Supreme Court now, like the Supreme Court in the abolitionist time, can freeze the political scene. Okay, that's the danger of judicial review. So they come in and say, no matter how many votes Joe Biden got, and no, man, no matter how high is the support for women's reproductive abortion rights or for vac vaccine mandates, we, the five of the nine of us, or six now of the nine of us of the Supreme Court, are going to take that issue out of politics and freeze the American public where it is. What could be more powerful than that? And when they come in and do that, they're doing something very dangerous. Because at the end of the day, as Andrew Jackson said, the Chief Justice has made his ruling. Now let him enforce it. So that the danger of the Supreme Court is that they freeze self-government, right? We can't vote. Women can't control their reproduction. Uh, black people can't be treated equally in a thousand ways, including at the polling booth. So they take all of those crucial issues in American society and they remove them from politics. In the long run, that cannot stand. Linda, and, in, in the context of the current situation with the Supreme Court, given that the conservatives have a fairly strong majority, are you suggesting constitutional reform in order to control the Supreme Court? Um, actually, I'm suggesting something more radical than that. Um, I actually think that uh, the uh, Democrats and, and the current administration should take a lesson from Abraham Lincoln and simply refuse to obey the Supreme Court's order. Well, that's pretty radical, Linda, and might spark another civil war. What about your, your, sixth, um, your sixth lesson is don't be intimidated you're clearly someone who who i'm sure nobody could intimidate what's the importance of, of avoiding intimidation um the if you allow the forces of the right who mobilize fatal force to advance their agenda and to um control the public situation we're seeing it right now in that trucker convoy business in Canada, right? If you if you allow them to use physical force to dictate the outcome, then you have once again given up the project of democratic self-governance. So stand up to the bullies. That's what you're saying. I am saying that. I absolutely am. And the abolitionists did it. They finally sent some big, broad-shouldered, brawny guys to the Congress. And the Southerners who were constantly waving their pistols around and threatening them with duels sort of backed down. 
And this this seventh one is a sort of summary, and I think it, it, it captures your spirit, Linda. Never give up. And I, I actually cribbed that from Winston Churchill. Never. Wow. Oh, Winston, uh, Winston, he certainly wasn't in favor of slavery, but he wasn't necessarily a progressive. No, but he certainly stood, knew how to stand up to a bully. And, That's true. And I think that the lesson from abolition is that in 35 years, they went from nothing to the Emancipation Proclamation. So what we progressives have in front of us now is a longer battle than just the next election or even the election after that. And we have to be resolved to fight that battle. Well, I think we need Linda Hirschman to lead us. She is incredibly spirited and determined and clear thinking. She's the author of a really interesting new book, The Color of Abolition, How a Printer, a Prophet, and a Contessa Moved the Nation. After the break, I want to talk about that printer, that prophet, and that contessa and get into the weeds of Linda's new book and learn even more specifically what we can learn about the abolition movement in terms of... Um, in terms of, of making America a better political place. So, uh, Linda, we're going to take a short break. Don't run away. We'll be back in about 60 seconds. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So, Whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now, back to Keenon. We are back with the wonderful Linda Hirschman, the author of The Color of Abolition. I think if all Americans were like Linda, we wouldn't be in the current crisis. Uh, Linda's new book, The Color of Abolition, um, is about the three characters who she thinks moved the nation, a printer, a prophet, and a contessa. So let's talk about them individually, Linda. Tell me about the printer. So the printer in many ways should be my favorite, right? Because I'm a writer 
and I'm a passionate believer in the power of ideas and of media. And he was early to the game. He was one of the earliest white abolitionists. There was a robust black movement before William Lloyd Garrison. And I don't want to say that. Yeah, and you, and, and you might just note that the printer is William Lloyd Garrison, um, who, who most Americans know about. You might just very briefly explain who he was and what his significance is. So he's an early 19th century character. He was born in 183 or five, something like that. And, um, and, and he was apprenticed as a printer. Um, there was the rise of printing. This is what I meant about the media technology. So he was apprenticed to a printer and he found himself, he found his life's calling when he started working in the newspaper business. And um, in 1830, he met a, an early abolitionist who I call John the Baptist of the abolition movement and was converted to abolition. And he started the abolitionist newspaper, The Liberator. And William Lloyd Garrison also started the first interracial anti-slavery society. As a, as a newspaper, uh, Linda, how often did it get published? And did it exclusively cover content associated with slavery and the abolition movement? And was it a broader newspaper? Oh, well, it came out once a week. Came, came out once a week and it focused, so it was like the Atlantic or the New Republic, but focused pretty much exclusively on the issue of abolition. Absolutely. There, you know, there were basically two functions to the Liberator. It reported the progress and the doings of the abolitionist movements as the little societies got started and stuff. And it reported in something called the refuge of oppression, what the wrongdoers were doing. And he was a pretty remarkable. I mean, I, I know it, it, you have some 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 questions and problems and criticisms of Garrison, but he was a pretty remarkable man, wasn't he? Oh, totally. Uh, you know, all of the three were extraordinary, and we have to be infinitely grateful to them for what they did to it eliminate this mortal sin of the American Republic, chattel slavery. Absolutely. And he was like, I have characters in all my books where I like Garrison. Um, they see the horizon. They're like little other Cassandras. And Garrison saw the wrongness of slavery right away. And he also saw that it couldn't be solved with gradual emancipation, like house uh, never is never soon enough for you, or colonization, sending the American. Right. So, so, so the various solutions put forward were sending African Americans back to Africa, not that they were ever given a choice to come to America in the first place. This is a, an opportunity to introduce our, our second character, or the second character in your book, the prophet Frederick Douglass, who. I hope all Americans know about. Why do you call him a prophet, Douglas? Um, he used the rhetoric of prophecy. If you look at his speeches and his writing, they're almost biblical in tone. He, he, he did what prophets have done since the Old Testament. He talked about the immorality of the wrongdoing, and he prophesied both the terrible things that would happen if we did not stop and, and um, exhorted us as a prophet will to stop. 
He so, was also um, he was also uh, a printer, wasn't he? He had his own oh, newspaper, yeah. The North Star. He was a man of letters. One of the most wonderful stories of all the wonderful stories about Frederick Douglass is how he taught himself after a, a little introduction um, and his master stopped teaching him how to read. He taught himself how to read. He would go to the docks in Baltimore and see what the letters looked like and figure out what they must mean. And he reverse engineered it to teach himself how to read. It's extraordinary. No, he's a remarkable man. And obviously in comparison to um, William Lloyd Garrison, he wasn't born into privilege. He was entirely self-made. The third character is the most intriguing, certainly has the most intriguing name, the Contessa. Who is she? Uh, Linda. So she is, as you would expect from the nickname, a beautiful, wealthy, socially prominent Bostonian. But she was also, like Garrison, uniquely free of the prejudices of, of the prejudices of her class, so that she was able to see the wrongdoing in slavery. And she married a rich... And her name was Maria West Chapman. Yeah. So Chapman family were abolitionists before Maria married her husband, who was a Chapman. And, um, and so she was introduced to abolition through marrying into the Chapman family. But she got it right away. And she brought all of the power of her social privilege to bear on this very marginal movement. And so she helped them a lot. But in the sad part of my story, she never was completely free of the unspoken assumption that Black people were not truly her equal. And she treated Frederick Douglass with a kind of managerial condescension that is shocking and in the movement. Uh, yeah, I want to get to that, the the division in the movement between Douglas um, and Chapman and, um, and Garrison. But the three of them together achieved a great deal. I mean, yeah. this is not just a book about division. It's a book about political success, isn't it? Um, you know, I wish that you could write all the reviews of my book, because that is exactly what I'm sure. I will if you pay me. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I shouldn't have said that publicly, Linda. Now I'm going to get into trouble. You're supposed to pay the reviewers. Although the review in the New York Times was so good that my brother accused me of paying the man. Yeah, I did. I, I read all the reviews. They are excellent. Um, so so the, 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 these three were both a team and also there was an element of disunion about them. Talk first briefly about how they worked so successfully together in terms of achieving this thing, which now to us seems so inevitable, but as you suggest, certainly wasn't inevitable in the middle of the 19th century. Oh, no, it was a miracle. And, and since I write about the value of collective action, I was so pleased to see how much they accomplished. Garrison had the power that his white privilege gave him. He was born very poor, so he wasn't very privileged, but he was white, which mattered a lot in the 19th century and now. So um, he started the immediatist movement, but there was no one in that movement, the equal 
of Frederick Douglass. When they put Frederick Douglass on the speaker's platform, cold hearts were moved from the first time he stood up to speak. He was an incredibly potent asset. And when he started his own paper, it too was immensely important. So Douglas and Garrison worked together and they traveled together and they spoke together. And, and um, Garrison was probably the least racist of the white abolitionists. And Maria and Garrison were a, a you know, tight team from beginning to end. And she was reliable and she was disciplined in ways that Garrison really was not. Yeah, and what about the 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 because the this is what you focus on partly in the book the, the the tactical division the disagreements they had on how to realize abolition how to change America. So um, the New York branch of abolition started disagreeing with Wayne Lloyd Garrison pretty early in the movement. Let's say ten years into it, um, and the really important division is the division between making only moral argument and saying to people, we have to secede from the union, no union with slaveholders. And that was Garrison's faction's position. But the New York faction- this is, uh, this is what's known as disunionism. Garrison and Douglas had, were they in agreement on disunionism, Garrison and Douglas, or disagreement? They were in agreement for the first seven or eight years of their uh, working together, their alliance. So Douglas signed on to the Garrison branch. He agreed with Garrison. He supported Garrison until the late 1840s when we'll never know what was actually the primary cause, but the white Garrison faction were treating him disrespectfully. So part of it was personal, but part of it was political. So when it comes to disunion, the division was about whether or not to remain committed to a United States, a single United States of America. There was the argument that we should just, the northern states should just succeed and, and create their own country. Well, um, Andrew, the, that was an argument of despair because they looked at the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court was saying to them that the Constitution was a bargain with slavery and that nothing they could do politically would ever change it. And that's why it's so similar to the situation that we're in now. Although the succession movements go both ways. There are succession movements both in California and Texas, one on the left and the right. So it's not just exclusive to progressives or conservatives, is it? It is a council of despair. And the political branch of abolition did not despair. They went to the law libraries and they cooked up a bunch of... Right. And, I, and I, I take that point, um, Linda, but what about the counter-argument? You, you've made an extremely compelling argument that history is repeating itself, not once, not twice, but three or four times in terms of this division in America between North and South, and it's particularly manifest today. Perhaps you could argue, well... You can't keep on trying to keep a country together that the two sides clearly don't want to have anything to do with one another. And in historical terms, they've disagreed generation after generation after generation. Why stay together? It's like a bad marriage. Uh, men and women sometimes stay together. They say for the children, but it's always in people's interest to split up. 
countries split up. There's nothing inevitable about a country, Linda, is there? No, and actually the divisions now are very similar to the divisions then, which is to say slavery was the living manifestation of the division, but it wasn't the only one. It was rural versus urban, and it was... um, Capitalism versus an alternative economic system. And the, the immigrants from Europe came to the north. They didn't go to the rural Walter Scott worshiping south. Someone said the smartest thing about the Civil War. It's like when farmers go to war with engineers, the farmers are going to lose. So it was. it's a big division. And do you know another one? It's about education and the value of education. The north was starting to become much more literate and uh, white northerners were starting to be... So, so I, I take your point, but why stick together then? Two different well, countries, they should split right. in, in two. Right, so here's the problem. How would you do it? Because at this point, you couldn't draw a clean Mason-Dixon line. The, uh, the United States is now more like Lebanon or Ireland. And if you had a civil war or even a division, you'd have this weird, spotty patches of red and blue all over the country. It's almost impossible to figure out how you would do it. Uh, I, 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 perhaps you're right. What about other issues that divided um, divided the, the printer, the prophet, and the contest? So what about the Back to Africa movement? Were they on the same page there in they terms were. of this idea that African-Americans should simply leave and go back to Africa where they originally came from? Yeah, they were pretty much all opposed to that. There was a moment of despair in the 1850s when some of the important black abolitionists like Martin Delaney thought maybe they should try again to go back to Africa or to Africa or to Haiti, which plays a very important role in abolition. But um, uh, Douglas and Garrison and uh, Weston Chapman were always in agreement that this was an American issue and sooner or later we were going to have to try to be Andrew a true multiracial right. and, and this issue of course Linda doesn't go away uh, yesterday I interviewed AJ Baim another best-selling writer on a book he's just written about Walter F White the um, the black uh, leader of the NCAAP who, who also passed as a white man in in, in the south um, and uh, Bain writes about a, quite a deep division within the 20th century African-American community between people like White, who believed in political compromise, and people like Marcus Garvey, who were much more separatist. So this division within the African-American community didn't go away. Were there African-American critics of Douglas who supported the Back to Africa movement? Yes, there were absolutely breaches between Douglas and people like Martin Delaney who supported the Back to Africa movement. There absolutely were. Do you think that in retrospect, the Back to Africa movement had an argument? No, I, I, I do not think that. It, you know, if you want to do a counterfactual, um, you'd have to think about what would Africa be like if it had not been harrowed into the ground by centuries of slave trade, right? I mean, they, you know, it's almost impossible to do that counterfactual. And I also think that America would be so impoverished 
if we have lost our black citizens, um, you know, in many ways, they have been the leading figures and teachers. The most American, yeah, I've had so many African-American scholars on the show, people like um, Carol Anderson, who seemed to me to be the most American, the, the few remaining optimistic Americans, uh, alongside perhaps you, Linda. So finally, you say it can be done. Uh, you write in The Atlantic, these are dark times, but dark times do not always prevail. Uh, four decades after black spokesmen told their white so-called friends in the excretable uh, America Colonization Society that they would not be returned to Africa, and just 30 years plus after the black activist David Walker published an appeal to the colored citizens of the world promising that the blacks once started would form a gang of tigers and lions, the newborn Republican Party won the presidency on a platform of restricting slavery. Um, you are the self-declared Cassandra in 2022. Where can we be in 2032, Linda, if things go right, if we take the spirit of the printer and the prophet and the contessa to once again fight for justice in America. Where can we be in 2032? God, we could be in such a better place. It is really such a, it's the American experiment, right? If the American experiment wasn't in self-government, I mean, 10 years after our revolution, the French undertook a similar thing and the British were uh, already well on the path to that. But to have a multiracial, self-governing democracy, we would be a beacon to the world and we could do it. I live half the year in Phoenix, Arizona and half the year in New York City. And, you know, when I go back to New York City, I'm always struck by the racial diversity of an average subway car and what a rich culture that place is to live in. And we could, we could learn so much from the, I mean, it's just astonishing how black people have been mistreated and abused. And if you look at my book, you'll see that it's dedicated to two black friends of mine, Ellie Mistel, who's the justice correspondent for the nation and Kelly Goff, who was a writer on, uh, and just like that, the Sex and the City revival. And, you know, they were good enough in our many years of friendship to talk in front of me about what their lives are like. And I tell you, I just listen to them and I think I would have been a murderer and in jail long ago. Where did they get the ability to keep hoping and keep working? Right. Right. And, and you do indeed uh, dedicate the book to Ellie Mistal and Kelly Goff, but also you add to the legions of historians, amateur and academic for the shoulders to stand on. So it's more than just a couple of friends. It's a whole class. And above all else, you stress, as you suggested, that white and black people need um, to work together. You, you conclude your Atlantic piece by saying one lesson emerges loudly from history. Neither black nor white Americans could have done it alone. And I think that is brilliantly summarized in your book, The Color of Abolition, how basically a white printer, a black prophet and a white contessa moved the nation. A wonderful book, uh, Linda. Congratulations. It's out, I think, today. What else should people be reading um, if they're to acquire your optimism and hope for the future in addition to your new book? Um, I think the single most important book 
in the contemporary history, the historian on whose shoulders I stand more than anyone is Eric Foner. And the book is Free, Free Men, Free Labor, Free Soil, Free Soil, Free Labor, Free Men. That was really the book that changed our understanding. When was it written, uh, Linda? When did it come out? In 1970. It's very old and it's still as relevant as ever. And we are all in Eric Foner's debt for change. Well, very old things have great value, Linda. That's for totally. sure. And, um, and I think the other book that I would recommend is, is just a great read. And we are, it's so important for the standing up to bullies part. And that's a, um, a uh, book called Fields of Blood by Joanne Freeman, who teaches history at Yale now. Uh, um, maybe you do know them. Maybe I can uh, interview them, have them on the show. Oh, uh, you know, Joanne Freeman and, and Heather Richardson have their podcast now and then. That's terrific. And I think that they would, uh, that Joanne, from my point of view, Heather is in a different, anyway, Joanne's book, she would be fantastic for you to have on your podcast, and I, I will say on the subject of your podcast, the um, interview with the author of the book about white was incredibly interesting to me. And oh, thank you, the AJ Bain. Uh, yeah, I found that, and, and I think actually side by side, your interview and his, perhaps we can get you both on the show. I love that. Uh, it's a real pleasure and honor, Linda, to talk to someone as optimistic as you, you may not be, uh, you're the author of The Color of Abolition, How a Printer, a Prophet, and a Contessa Moved the Nation. You may not be a Contessa, but you are a Cassandra, and you are trying to move a nation, which is hard to budge, but you're doing a pretty good job. I think everyone needs to read your book, and it's lovely to have you on the show, uh, Linda. We need um, we need Cassandras, cheerful Cassandras like yourself, hopeful Cassandras. So stay well, keep fighting, Linda, keep writing, and we'll have you back on the show in the not-too-distant future. Thank you so much. Pleasure.